Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Disrupts. Um, today, we're going to be talking about a few more academic theories and their intersection with climate change. So we're going to talk about feminism, critical race theory, and queer theory. Yeah. And just to give you a catch up, last time we talked about decolonial theory, green theory, and indigenous theory. And stay tuned for our upcoming interview with Smart Eyes, where we talk about the intersection of climate change and ind indigenous communities. It's going to be a really great conversation and we can't wait for you to hear it. Yeah. The first theory we wanted to talk about is feminism. And there's two kinds of ways that feminist theory deal with the environment and climate change. The first is this older school eco-feminist conception that, you know, says women have a natural connection with nature, the whole idea of the mother goddess, um, this innate connection. But there's a more kind of different academic approach that takes more of a feminist political ecology idea. And that has a more integrated understanding of women's oppression as being rooted in structural and material inequalities. Especially resulting from how the land has been dominated by like capitalism and resource extraction and whatnot. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's this idea that the way that humans, particularly men, have dominated nature is exactly the same way that women have been dominated. And that way of thinking about domination means that we can take a lot of lessons from both of those different types of domination and apply them to one another. Yes, yeah, so with that sort of line of thinking, there's sort of a rejection of this, you know, inherent innate connection between women and the environment as being one and the same, but you can still take lessons from their similar experiences with domination by men. Mm -hmm. And then thinking about climate change, um, some of the ways, there's a lot of different ways that feminism think, feminist theory thinks about climate change, but some of them have to do with dealing with the problematic issue of binaries. So if a binary is when there's one thing or there's another thing. Black and white, hot Black. and cold. Exactly. Um, and feminist theory sees these binaries as really problematic because they obscure kind of the broader picture of things and really minimize things to it being one thing or another. Um, so within climate change, one issue is like green technology, clean technology, and dirty technology. That's just not enough. No, very simplistic. It's a very reductive way of thinking about the environment or how to address environmental issues like climate change and degradation and whatnot. I'm trying to think of like, what are alternative ways, like non-binary ways to... See so like scale, like a sliding scale maybe. So instead of, you know, speaking within these dichotomies, it would be kind of like what Gabby said, a, a sliding scale, so to speak. So it's not either clean energy, dirty energy, but recognizing that there's probably elements of both dichotomies in whatever technology you're talking about. So, or whatever energy you're talking about. So it's very much this continuum instead of a this or that. Another dichotomy that feminist theory probably talks about is global North and global South. Yes. Um, because when you reduce the world to just global North, global South, you're missing all of the, you know, domestic issues, regional issues, and then 
within a lot of climate change discourse on like an international organization level, you know, it's like, oh, Global South has all of these climate change problems. Global North is wonderful and has technological advantages to deal with like managing this crisis. Um, and we that's are so just, advanced and rich. Look at us. Yes. And that's obviously not good. <laughs> no. And also just a very simplistic way of defining development in materialist capitalist terms. Another way that feminist theory looks at climate change is the idea that we can't just look at different parts of climate change issue by issue. So we can't just say, we're just going to talk about ocean pollution. We're just going to talk about toxic poisoning. Um, because if you don't look at the problem in a holistic lens, um, then you miss the fact that the current eco-crisis that we're in is driven by a managerial ethics that prioritizes efficiency over everything else. Mm -hmm. So this tendency of feminism to see climate issues as holistic also reflects in some other strands of feminism that incorporate um, other intersections with race and whatnot. So they're like intersectional feminism, which was coined by Kimberly Crenshaw, an intersectional feminist approach to climate change would look at the ways that um, women, especially women of color, quote unquote, in the global South, especially, um, bear the brunt of a lot of environmental degradation and climate change, such as natural disasters and whatnot. So even within feminism, there are different, more holistic, intersectionally focused camps. We'll talk about this more when we talk about feminism with other issue areas, but suffice to say, it's a huge field. Um, and it has a really interesting way of thinking about problems that traditional theories really miss. And I think feminism is especially useful and important for some scholars because women and especially women of color have been so traditionally marginalized by policy or just not thought about in policy in terms of the way women specifically and differently are impacted than men in um, certain situations and for instance, climate change and whatnot. So this theory, feminism allows people to dig in and unpack the specific experiences of women. I think one mark that some strands of feminism miss though is it it challenges these binaries, you know, or it likes to challenge these binaries, but in a lot of ways it does fall into the binary of there are two genders. There's men and there's women. And so it misses the experiences of people that fall outside of those gender binaries. Um, not to say that that doesn't exist in feminism, that there are like trans inclusive, non-binary inclusive strands of feminism, but in a lot of feminism, breaking out of that gender binary is not necessarily a priority, although hope it will become in the future. One final thing that feminist theory is good about doing is critiquing other ways of thinking about climate change policy. Mm -hmm. um, so often you find that in a lot of policy that addresses climate change, there's no mention of gender, there's no mention of intersectionality, and that neutrality, which a lot of organizations claim is because this has nothing to do with gender, in fact, obscures the fact that there are gender politics going on behind the scenes. And by not saying anything, it just reproduces those again, which leads us into queer theory. Queer theory is, you know, I don't know if I have the authority to say this, but it, it seems like a relatively new way of thinking about international relations. And it's not as fully developed, especially in the realm of climate change. So that is an opportunity for research to grow. No, I mean, I think 
my takeaway when we were researching for this podcast was I was like, there's some things on queer theory and international relations, but very few things or none at all of applying queer theory to climate change, which emerging scholars, you should take this opportunity to do so. Mm-hmm. But queer theory, so sort of some of the main principles of queer theory kind of feed off of feminism in terms of questioning narratives and questioning these binaries, especially questioning grand narratives relating to truth, power, and identity. And some of the binaries that Bridget's talking about are sexual, so heterosexual, homosexual, gender, male, female, class, rich, poor, racial, white, non-white. And it tries to go beyond these binaries to contest political Um, and international binary orders as well. So public, private, and democratic authoritarian. So sort of one of the the critiques I mentioned earlier of feminism tending to fall into this gender binary trap, queer theory has sort of uptaken that issue and tried to break free from that. So just sort of using the origins of LGBTQ studies and breaking away from some of those problems with feminism. I found it difficult to find things on the um, climate change, but in terms of the environment, I could imagine that queer theory could be used to better understand these grand narratives and challenge binaries that link class to poor environmental care. Um, That's just one possibility. There's a book by Dr. Nicholas Smith. The book is called Capitalism, Sexual History. I believe it was a super, super interesting take using queer theory on the development of capitalism and how capitalism has this inherently sexual history. So hoping to talk about queer theory a lot more when we get to class issues and unpacking capitalism and Marxism and whatnot. And I mean, drawing on that, if you think about using queer theory the his- to understand the history of capitalism, we could also probably easily use queer theory to understand the history of climate change policymaking mm-hmm. and how that's developed, um, you know, since Rachel Carson's Silent Spring and late 1900s and see how that development has really had consequences for the queer community, but also how it's like, you know, utilized them and maybe used them in a very damaging way. I think one of the cool things about queer theory is that it's not just for LGBTQ communities and the way that queer communities are marginalized. It's, it can also be useful to understanding the way these labels of sexuality and whatnot influence everyone, whether you're a part of an LGBTQ community or not. Yeah, very much agree. And that brings us to our third theory we're going to talk about today, critical race theory. Um, which tries to examine the appearance of race and racism across dominant cultural modes of expression. In a very similar way to how feminism looks at the experiences of specifically women, critical race theory seeks to unpack the way that people of different races and ethnicities experience different issues such as climate change or environmental degradation. And this is like perfect for climate change because there's so much out there about climate change migrants, how they have been racialized, um, about environmental racism across the U.S. and other cultures and states. Um, and it's such, it, I don't want to say it's understudied because it is being studied, but it's an under-discussed topic in how policy is created. Absolutely. I think you see this a lot with a lack of recognition in how climate change solutions absolutely have to have a recognition of the way race plays into individuals' 
experiences of climate change and whatnot. Yes, so critical race theory is really helpful in understanding the ways that people of color are specifically impacted by um, climate change and other environmental problems such as pollution and whatnot. If you look at where are the worst polluted areas in the United States, they're in majority black communities. And so even just taking something as like simple as that, you see that climate change and racial justice are very deeply connected and something that you cannot pursue without recognizing the other. Mm -hmm. And another way that um, critical race theory can be used is to talk about different responses to climate change and the different issues that are racialized. Um, so for example, the way that we talk about climate change in the United States versus the way we talk about it in India are very different in both places. Um, so for example, if you watch American news, it's often look at the smog in India. This is terrible. This is awful. You know, they need to stop. They need to become clean, which obscures the fact that the only way that Western countries such as the United States became quote unquote cleaner uh, energy producers is because they went through that process and then converted. And by them saying, you can't do that. They're in inherently saying, uh, you need to forever be a developing country to produce products for us. Mm -hmm. And that also ties in, and I think we might have talked about this on an earlier episode, but the way that the United States and white Western countries dump their used technology in other countries. So I've seen so many videos and news stories of just these mounds and mounds of old technologies that have been shipped mm -hmm. to countries. And the ones I'm thinking of, are in Africa and I can't remember exactly which countries, but, um, and so all of this, you know, the chemical leakage that comes out of that is significantly impacting the health of these communities that are receiving these discarded technologies. And it's, it's just never talked about And the United States and other polluters, they, they pay no price for the damage that they're inflicting on these communities of color. I find critical race theory to be one of the more persuasive theories when it comes to understanding the consequences of climate change policy and thinking about how we're going to solve climate change. Because if we come at it from this Western geoengineering approach within the UN, we are just going to do the things that marginalize non-white communities again and again. And using this theory, we can kind of come in you know, almost without our blinders um, up and be like, okay, when we're doing something, are we thinking about the consequences of everything? I think CRT also is super useful in supplementing other theories. Mm -hmm. So we talked about how feminism the, or feminist theory often is very white and doesn't recognize the intersection of race and gender. But then if you come in with a CRT perspective and along with feminism or if you're looking at a Marxist perspective and then you take into account the ways race plays into that, even though Marxism claims that class transcends race, which it actually doesn't, but- um, Small note. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't, small note. Um, I think it's pretty much impossible to not use CRT when doing any sort of political analysis because in, in this capitalist, you know, imperialist, colonialist, international system that we live in now, 
race is such a significant driver and you're not going to be able to completely understand or holistically understand any political issue if you're not taking race into account. And that's the benefits of all of these theories that we talk about, you know, as Britta said, critical race, queer, feminist, colonial, green, indigenous, they all, when you use them, you can highlight a specific area while saying all of these issues matter, but let's talk about this one issue right now. And then, you know, in a different aspect, discuss another issue, but at least we're addressing these really subaltern and marginalized voices in a way that traditional IR theory and traditional policymaking oftentimes does not. After sort of reflecting on these series when we were doing the prep and the reading for this episode, I was just pretty routinely struck by the ignorance of feminism in some ways. And I'm specifically talking about white feminism in terms of looking at climate change issues. And it just like, to me, any feminist theory that doesn't look at how especially race and class intersect with gender. It's just like useless to me because I mean, feminism in my mind should seek to liberate all women and recognize the different experiences between and among women. And if it's not giving space to do that and specifically looking at the ways like women of color are impacted, then it's just, I, I have no use for this theory. That's not, it's it's so restrictive if it's not looking at those things. And so pretty much any feminist theory I came across that wasn't inclusive or didn't significantly mention things like race and class and whatnot, I was just like, this is garbage. And if it's useful to only white women, that's not the kind of theory we need to be moving towards. Not to pack on to feminism. <laughs> I know, I'm sorry. I'm a feminist. I believe in it, but I was just very, found myself very frustrated yeah. with it throughout the, throughout the prep. I had very similar issues with feminism. Um, and I think a lot of that comes from this divide within feminism that um, on one hand talks about structural issues that women face, but then there's this whole other field. And that was a lot of what I have done reading on before, which take this more essentialist idea of, women in nature being very connected um, and that innate bond being the reason that women understand nature better and want to, um, you know, be holistic with it. And I personally have an issue with that. (laughs) (laughs) Have you seen me with plants? Like I kill all my plants. I reject, reject this notion. Yeah. And of course there are intersectional feminist approaches that are focused on, on structure and not on, mother nature goddess um, way of seeing things, but it's in no way an equal division, you know? And the fact that there is so much scholarship out there that doesn't take an intersectional approach and doesn't look at it from a structural perspective makes feminism a little bit of a hard theory to deal with. A little bit, yes. Um, Anyone that's curious in learning more about intersectionality and the importance of non-essentialist feminism, I, I mean, start with the the queen herself, Kimberly Crenshaw. Mm-hmm. Um, she invented the concept of intersectionality and has so many great writings and resources on what intersectional feminism looks like. I will say what's interesting about feminism is that if you 
come from a traditional IR perspective where you just have focuses on the state and realism and liberalism and, you know, looking at institutions, feminism comes along and you're like, wow, amazing. Let's step out of this. And then you come at it from a critical perspective and you're like, you are not doing enough. Absolutely. I remember like little freshman me when I was like, ooh, feminism and politics. I love it. And then it's just, you know, the more you take it or you learn about these other critical theories and take critical approaches, it's like, huh, maybe it's it's not what I thought it was. Yeah. And you said something about this, not in the podcast, off the pod, um, this idea that we don't just have to use one. So like, even though we have problems with feminism as it stands, if you took that, combined it with queer theory, CRT, you know, decolonial green theory, and kind of this unified critical approach to climate change, that would maybe be better. I love it. I just, I am so much more, like, I, I hate to use the term convinced, but I just, like, I guess it is convinced, like, if you're not just using one theory, because in my mind, you're only taking... Mm-hmm you're only seeing one side of whatever situation or political issue you're looking at. And I just, I can't imagine myself ever being like, okay, there's not something missing here. This is it. This is all I need to know, especially with how complex some of these Mm -hmm. issues are um, and how much diversity and different identities play into these issues. I just think it's so, so narrow-minded to be like, nope, my theory is the end-all be-all and no one else has anything useful to contribute. I mean, this goes back to academic siloing, this idea that we've split everything, both you know, sociology, political science, anthropology, and then within political science and international relations, all of these different theories, a lot of the times they don't speak to each other, which is really problematic because if you for example, want to read about climate change policy. Um, You look at it from a feminist perspective and you say, oh, there's a huge research gap. No one has discussed this. Well, that's probably not true. It's probably been discussed in other literatures, but they just don't speak to each other in a way that is productive in a way that we can actually think forward about addressing these issues. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think that's probably it for our two climate change theory episodes. As Bridget said at the beginning, we have some great interviews and discussions coming. And in the meantime, we'd love your feedback. We'd love your questions. So if you have any questions, you can DM us on Twitter at DisruptRCP or email us at DisruptRCP at gmail.com. I am so excited for our interviews because, you know, anyone that's listening to this that's not in academia and you're like, what the fuck are these theories? Like, what what is this? This is not useful to me. Totally get it. And that's why we want to have practitioners on activists and whatnot so we can see how these theories play out in the real world if they're useful or not um, to just sort of make this this academic speak more more useful and Mm -hmm. accessible to people that aren't in academia Mm -hmm.